Welcome to Understory, the West of Australia's one and only environmental radio show. I'm Tom Wilson. Today is God Green. I'll be talking with Martin Palmer, Secretary General of the Alliance of Religions and Conservation, a UK-based organisation which brings together faiths around the world in the cause of conservation. But before we get international with Martin Palmer, let's focus in on America. In the US, religion and conservation uh, particularly Christianity and conservation, are not two subjects we've come to associate very positively. You might even see them as enemies in the US from what you might have read or heard. Not according to a new film from producer and director David Conover. I'll be speaking with Conover directly from the US about his new film Behold the Earth, currently in production. Here's a taste of the film. <laughs> Beholding is very different than taking a look at something. When you first look at a beetle or first look at a flower um, and you do it as a child, you can look very, very closely and for very, very long periods of time. I think that science has become so unique and so powerful that it's a threat to a lot of people. Haunted. Haunted is an easy word for all these moons and every sound We have Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And all put together is a very dangerous mix. religious people of an industrialized country in the world. There is a very strong ethical fiber that runs through science and the scientific community that says you report only what really is there. Now where did we get that core? That's a good question. I think uh, it has a lot to do with our religion and our religious capital from previous generations. so very important that we strive to have better self-understanding as a species of who we are and where we came from. And we can't do that without a dialogue between science and religion, the two most powerful forces in the world. Water bound 
It's an inquiry into America's divorce from nature. And essentially it involves uh, three elements. There's the, it's kind of a think piece. So, you know, my generation, uh, my dinner with Andre, had kind of uh, food for thought, that's one element. A second element is uh, nature and landscape kind of footage in an experiential sort of way. And the third element is uh, music. And that's drawing on the tradition of American roots music and that as an expression of the American connection to the, to the natural world in the past. Okay, well, the, the film looks fascinating and I'm sure it'll be of interest to anyone with an interest in uh, environmentalism and connecting with values more than just a scientific view of the natural world. What made you want to make this film? Was it the disconnect with nature that you see in a lot of modern societies? Well, uh, you do see a lot of uh, disconnect, and certainly a lot of questions arise for people uh, who are parents of children today, I think who are living in a very different world than than we did growing up. But um, more than the disconnect, it was really about uh, what motivated me was was how we talk about our connection to nature. What are the core values, the core beliefs that inform our connection to the natural world? And I think those have to do with beliefs that people oftentimes don't talk about a lot in public, um, but are really um, formative in how we view the world. And those are religious beliefs, our sense of how we know what we know. Um, And uh, I I saw that there was a disconnect, particularly in in the States, um, but I think it is somewhat also apparent uh, elsewhere. But uh, here... Um, the language of environmentalism is the language of science. And that misses perhaps as much as 50% of, of who lives here and who is walking through the fields and along the rivers and along the coasts of this country. Um, their language is, is perhaps as equally informed uh, by books of the Bible, parables, stories, uh, long ancient stories hundreds, thousands of years old uh, that uh, describe that connection to the environment. And I wanted to kind of bring these worldviews together, these basic beliefs together uh, in an inquiry and just go out and ask the question, you know, what is it that that, uh, connects you to the natural world? Okay, and do you think many people in the U.S. are, many religious people, are caring about what they call the creation do you think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of environmentalism amongst the evangelicals? I mean, that's certainly not the view we've been given to believe in in Australia. Well, you know, I think a lot of religions, and certainly within the evangelical tradition, uh, a lot of their experience is, is informed by the sense that we should take care of what we have. Um, that there is this incredible creation that's out there that 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 has been given to humanity to to be a part of, um, and that you know, we should take care of it. I mean, it's that, that's a, a responsibility, and I think that, that's becoming increasingly apparent to religious communities as they see that you know, things are not as they used to be, that there are not as many fish in the stream. Um, and uh, yes, I do see evidence of, of that. I mean, looking at the looking at some of the footage from the film, it seems like that uh, there's almost a kind of a worship of the creation in your beautiful cinematography of the natural world. Would would this maybe 
be an accusation of uh, confusing the worship of the creation or with that of the creator i mean I, I think a lot of religious people would prefer if you were worshiping the creator rather than the creation well i i think that the um uh it, it depends to some degree on who you talk with. Uh, Cal DeWitt, who's uh, been very interesting in this respect, uh, speaks a lot of what he calls the two books theology, that there's the book of the Bible and there's the book of the creation. And to understand, you need to really study both books. And it's very, very important to, to study the creation. He would not say worship the creation. Um, and, uh, you know, as I proceeded with my line of inquiry, you know, to, to his part of the world, which is a fantastic marsh uh, outside of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, you know, he, he, he brought me through the marsh and he, he, he knows that marsh, you know, just every little square inch. It's incredibly impressive. He's not worshiping the marsh per se, but he's studying the creation that the marsh presents him as well as studying, uh, you know, his Bible. And I really wanted to ask you about uh, your interview with Edward O. Wilson, the uh, preeminent American, uh, let's call him the uh, prose stylist of modern science. He's a very well-known scientist all around the world, in Australia as well as the US. What was it like interviewing O. Wilson? How old is he now? Well, when I sat to speak with him, I think he was perhaps 79, this was uh, a couple of years ago, and um, I had read his book, he wrote an a incredibly beautiful little book called The Creation, An Appeal to Save Life on Earth, and this was very much a part of the inspiration actually for this film as well as this uh, question of how we speak about our relationship to, to the natural world, and in this book, which is structured as a letter to a pastor, he, he, he tries to identify the, the common the commonness, you know, of, of worldviews. And he's very passionate about it. He's incredibly insightful, and you would not know. I mean, you, you could be talking to a 25-year-old. I mean, he's, he had an incredible energy and, um, and was in no way uh, discouraged from using the word the creation. It's the title of the book. But uh, it is something that I think a lot of uh, scientists who consider themselves secular humanists, as does he, uh, would shy away from, uh, preferring instead to call it, you know, uh, nature or, you know, the living nature. But uh, he, he, he's long been a hero for me, uh, incredibly inspiring. Um, I just love the way he tries to put his head around the big view, you know, what's not only happening next week, but what's happening 10,000 years down the road. Well, that'll certainly, certainly be something to look forward to in the film. Uh, moving on, the visual aspect of the film, you've worked, you've been uh, one of the minds behind Sunrise Earth, that stunning catalogue of images of sunrises around the planet. Can you describe some of your past history in filmmaking? Yeah. Um, you know, my... Uh, uh, I live on the coast of Maine here uh, in, in New England, and so this is an area that's very connected to the sea. Um, the sea has always been a big, you know, formative element for my work uh, in filmmaking. Uh, I prefer a kind of inquiry approach based to, to making films where you have a real question at the beginning and you go out and you, you explore. So in a sense, you're kind of collecting data, collecting evidence to, uh, to assemble in a way that hopefully is representative and 
and truthful to what your questions you're asking and what what answers and responses you come across. Um, but Sunrise Earth for me was a bit of a departure from from a narrative that's based on these these questions and responses. It was really an opportunity to just sit in a landscape and um, in obviously a mediated sort of way, but uh, mediated by a much larger screen than than people had uh, been viewing up to that point. This this series really came to be at the advent of, of HD television. So the screens were much bigger, and people were interested in the, the higher resolution. And uh, I think, for me, it was really just an opportunity to kind of give people the sense of, okay, if you could just sit and watch the sunrise for an hour without any narrator, without any um, music, but the, the only sounds being what you heard on that morning, um, what would you see? What would it feel like? And uh, we did a couple of trial runs. We presented the idea to Discovery as a pitch. And um, then after a few <laughs> no thanks, uh, that's a little too far out for us, they, they came back and said, yeah, we'll give it a go. So we tried it, and it, uh, we did 65 hours. It now, I think, airs for approximately 50 million people around the world in maybe 30 different countries every morning. Let's hope we get an Australian release of David Conover's Behold the Earth. And before we leave the film, let's hear one last excerpt. Uh, this is from where Edward O. Wilson answers the question, does the story of Noah's Ark have any relevance today? Did Noah's Ark really gather all of the creatures of Earth? There are 5,000 kinds of mammals alone. 5,000 or more frogs and salamanders. There are 10,000 birds, and there are well in excess of 10 million kinds of insects. We now know that. So, do we abandon then the story of um, Noah's Ark? The answer is emphatically not. Um, it is a wonderful parable. Earth is the Ark. That all of the biosphere, that is, all of that very thin layer of living organisms that supports our own life, is the ark. And that that is what we have to save uh, in order to prevent ourselves from being destroyed. Finally today, we come to Martin Palmer. I recently had Martin on the phone direct from Bath in England. Martin Palmer speaks regularly on religion and the environment on the BBC radio program Thought for the Day, as well as being an Anglican and an author. Palmer is the Secretary General of the ARC, the Alliance of Religions and Conservation, an organization started by Prince Philip. What is the Alliance and how did it come into being? Okay, well, the Alliance is a secular organization. We do not belong to nor we funded by any particular religion. We were set up by our big sister, uh, WWF, the World Wide Fund for Nature, um, some 15, 16 years ago, specifically to work with the largest sector of civil society in any culture uh, around the world, which is the major religions. And we're not an interfaith body. We're not terribly interested in what unites the religions because in the end, people will do things because they feel they have a distinctive contribution to make. And so, for example, 
we work with over 15 different forms of Buddhism around the world, ranging from Mongolian Buddhism through to uh, Cambodian Buddhism or Sri Lankan Buddhism, um, because each of them has a very different take on our relationship with the natural world, depending on what the natural world is. For Mongolia, it's largely desert, uh, whereas for Cambodia or Sri Lanka, it's forest, and therefore they have different stories, different traditions, different values in many cases, but a core belief of Buddhism, but it manifests itself in different ways. And we work with 11 major faiths around the world, uh, the Baha'is, Buddhists, Christians, Taoists of China, um, Jews, Jains, uh, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Shinto, uh, and Zoroastrian. And in each case, we're looking to find what is it that they know, that they remember, that they can reinvigorate, if you like, or in some cases reinvent, about how to live sustainably with the planet, because they were the dominant value systems of the planet until the last 200 years. And I think many of us would argue it's been the last 200 years that have been perhaps the most problematic. Well, that's a, a, grand, uh, a grand scope for the Alliance. And uh, what has the Alliance of Religions and Conservation achieved thus far, 2011? Well, that's always an interesting question, Tom. Um, you know, we, we, were, we live in a world in which environmental groups launch 18-month campaigns to save the oceans, or uh, the, the World Bank launches a five-year program for the resuscitation of a war-torn country. Our approach on religions is we deal with generations, and therefore it's very difficult in many ways to say, what have you achieved? I, I'm always reminded of the comment of uh, when a French journalist asked uh, Joe Lai, the Prime Minister or Premier of China back in the uh, 60s, what did he think of the French Revolution of the late 18th century? And Joe and I replied, I think it's too early to say. <laughs> and I think with religion and indeed with the environment, we have to be very careful. Um, we have to recognize that it takes time and it takes a certain amount of humility too to allow nature to have the space to recover. But if I was to point to some of the things, um, 25 years ago, and it's exactly 25 years ago uh, this September, when we first brought together religious leaders with environmental leaders in, in Assisi, um, I struggled to find five religious leaders from five major religions who even knew there was an environmental crisis. Now, um, there are over 5,000 books uh, on different religions, on, in different languages, which are about the faith and environment. And we have a program here in the UK called Thought for the Day, which is a sort of religious reflection that goes out in the morning on a major BBC radio program. Um, I would guess now that probably every fifth or sixth such talk will focus on the environment. So at a sort of awareness level, I think we've, we've been successful. In terms of land management, um, we estimate that the faiths we work with um, own outright about 8% of the habitable surface of the planet. And we've now got protection covenants on the forests and some of the farmland that they own and run for probably around about 15% of that land. Um, the faiths are the third largest investors in the world as a collective group. They have huge investment portfolios. For the last 10 years, we've been helping them shift uh, parts of their portfolios into sustainable energy, sustainable forestry, sustainable agriculture. 
In China, for example, the Taoists have 26,000 temples. All of those will be solar-powered by uh, 2015. Um, we have a situation, for example, with the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage of Muslims to Mecca. Uh, last year, 100 million plastic bottles were left behind. We are launching in uh, October this year uh, a program to green the Hajj with uh, major Muslim organizations and nations around the world with the aim that in five years' time there is no plastic bottles on the Hajj. Um, in terms of energy use and reduction of energy use, um, in the United States, um, the splendidly named Interfaith Power and Light uh, now provides alternative energy to 16,000 religious buildings uh, and organizations. Um, so I think what we see is a, an enormous mobilization of the faiths that was Martin Palmer of the Alliance of Religions and Conservation. So, is God green? Am I a heathen? Who knows? I've been Tom Wilson for Understory, your weekly environmental report from Western Australia. Bye for now. Yeah.